Welcome to the latest episode of Big Screen Batman, celebrating the 75th anniversary of the character, and hosted by Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. First, I'd like to welcome the new listeners who have found us through the Stitcher app. All of Bureau 42's podcasts are available on Stitcher. This month, we're talking about Batman and Robin, not the 1949 serial that we discussed a few months ago, but the June 20th, 1997 release, and the second film directed by Joel Schumacher. Now, Joel Schumacher did come back to this after Batman Forever, but he did a time to kill in between. He doesn't typically do sequels. He says he never really thought it was a good idea, but this time he did it. He had less time to prepare, and after this film, he went on to make 8mm, Flawless, Tigerland, Bad Company, Phone Booth, Phantom of the Opera, number 23, a few episodes of House of Cards, so he is still working as he was before. In this case, the studios brought him back with a very specific purpose. They were still getting complaints that the movies were too dark to really be family films and to show to all the kids that it was appealing to. So he was asked to produce a more kid-friendly, or as he puts it, toyetic movie. So this is the first time when they're saying, no, we really need to have a lot of toys, which is why we see multiple costume changes for Batman, Robin, and Batgirl, multiple vehicles, costume changes for the villains. There's a lot here that you can make very specific and colorful toys from, and that does have a bit of an impact on the overall film. Akiva Goldsman is also back as the screenwriter. He had previously worked with Schumacher on a couple of the Grisham movies and Batman Forever, including Time to Kill. After this, he went on to write Lost in Space, Practical Magic, A Beautiful Mind, which is probably his best work, iRobot, Cinderella Man, Da Vinci Code, I Am Legend, Angels and Demons, 19 episodes of Fringe, A Winter's Tale, and he's got more on the way. Now, one thing I will say for Joel Schumacher, having listened to the director's commentary, whether you like the film or not, he is taking full responsibility for it. He makes it very clear that if you want to bash Akiva Goldsman, well, Akiva Goldsman was writing the movie that Joel Schumacher wanted him to write, and Joel Schumacher was the one who was filming it that way. They were asked to make a lighter family film, so they did a lot of rewriting to Akiva Goldsman's original darker script to make that happen. Ellie Goldenthal also returned as the composer, and since Batman Forever, he had done Voices, Heat, A Time to Kill, and Michael Collins. He's done 16 other movies since that, with more on the way, including Sphere, Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, Frida, The Good Thief, Swat, Across the Universe, Public Enemies, and A Midsummer Night's Dream, directed by Julie Taymor of the Broadway Spider-Man fame or infamy. Stephen Goldblatt is back as director of photography. Before this and after Batman Forever, he had done striptease. After this, he'd go on to Deep End of the Ocean, Closer, Rent, The Lightning Thief, and more. Mark Stevens is back as one of the editors. He did Chain Reaction between the two Batman films, and he worked with Schumacher quite a bit in the films that followed, including 8mm, Flawless, Tigerland, Phone Booth, Freddy vs. Jason, Stay Alive, Number 23, and The Final Destination, the 2009 version that ended the franchise, not the earlier Morgan and Wong version that started the franchise when they had no intention of making a franchise. Dennis Verkler also came back as editor. He did The Devil's Own in between the Batman films. After this, went on to do A Perfect Murder, Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle, Collateral Damage, Daredevil, which we'll be discussing next year when this podcast becomes Silver Screen Superheroes, Chronicles of Riddick, Into the Blue, The Fog, The Guardian, The Wolfman, Five Episodes of Castle, and more. John Dykstra returns as the visual effects supervisor, and he would go on to have another remarkable career and continue. He's won Oscars for visual effects both before and after. Uh, including his Oscar for the Spider-Man films, as directed by Sam Raimi. Now, the cast is pretty remarkable as well. So Val Kilmer chose not to return, preferring instead to make The Saint, 
I think that was pretty excellent judgment on his part. The Saint did not become the franchise that they hoped it would, but it was a very good movie. With that, the door was open to recasting, and Schumacher went out and the idea was to grab one of the big TV stars who were currently available. So the last two names in the running were David Duchovny of The X-Files and George Clooney. And Clooney was, of course, the one they went with. When Clooney was doing this, he worked seven days a week while he was filming, doing four days on ER and three on Batman and Robin every week. So he was working every single day for months. He would later say that he took the part because he wasn't used to the idea that he could turn down a role yet. He didn't really understand how famous he was becoming and how popular he was becoming. He's also said that it's the only job he's ever taken without reading the script and that it's now the only job he will ever take without first reading the script. Chris O'Donnell returns as Dick Grayson and Robin because he was contractually obligated to. They were looking at using the name Batman Triumphant again, but they changed the name to Batman and Robin because O'Donnell was so popular with some of the audiences following the previous film. Michael Gough returns. Some of that is the British mindset. He came from the British stage, so he did a lot of work with the stage work, theater, you keep going, and you honor commitments. If he started in the role, he was going to follow it through. And frankly, this time, Alfred actually gets more to work with as a character for the actor than he has in most of the previous films. Pat Hingler returns as well as Commissioner Gordon, and this time he actually gets to impact the plot. That hasn't happened in a while. Granted, it's only minor input. He throws a switch and then gets manipulated and hands over some keys. But it's the first time since 1989 that the character has felt like more than a decoration. Now, Bob Kane's wife, Elizabeth Sanders, returns as Gossip Gertie. When it comes to the villains and casting them, first to choose the villains, Joel Schumacher asked his six-year-old stepson, because he figured that's the target audience we're aiming for. Or sorry, not stepson, godson. So he asked his godson, who are your favorite Batman villains we haven't seen yet? And his godson picked the favorites that he had from the animated series. Now, yet Mask of the Phantasm will be next month's podcast, but that is the theatrical release that spun out directly out of that animated series. So Schumacher's godson, who we can see during the motorcycle race sequence in this film, chose Mr. Freeze, Poison Ivy, and Bane as the villains. With Mr. Freeze, the studio was originally going for Patrick Stewart, who had already been chosen by the fans and was being talked about as the perfect choice for Mr. Freeze. He looked the part, he was a great actor, Star Trek Next Generation had wrapped up, that's who the studios wanted. Schumacher wanted Stallone or Schwarzenegger or someone else who looked like they were chiseled out of a glacier, with Schwarzenegger as his first choice. I was working at a theater still when this movie came out, and they said, it kind of got leaked among the exhibitors, that they eventually signed Schwarzenegger instead of Stewart because Schwarzenegger was going to be cheaper than Patrick Stewart, which got quite the reaction. People were going, how can Stewart be asking for more money than Schwarzenegger? It made Patrick Stewart sound arrogant and overpriced. We did find out more details later, namely that Patrick Stewart was the only actor who was given a copy of the script before being asked to sign on for the film. And his reply was basically, do you know how much you'd have to pay me to make this? And then gave them the actual number. And that's why Schwarzenegger was cheaper. Schwarzenegger reportedly signed on for $10 million up front, which is actually relatively low for him, especially at that point in his career, and a large percentage of all the merchandise with his character on it. So he saw this thing as a giant toy commercial and figured, okay, give me a piece of the toys. It makes a lot of sense. I understand why he did it. Uh, keep in mind, Arnold Schwarzenegger actually earned a business degree from the University of Wisconsin while he was competing as Mr. Universe. He saw this movie probably as a way to make money in an action role that his children could actually watch. To this point, the only movies he'd been in that his children could see 
were that family comedies and not his proudest work, not anything in the genres he was best known for. So this was a chance for them to see him as an action star. And as I said, with a good chunk of his merchandise, any merchandise with Mr. Freeze on it, all the lunch boxes, all the toys, any merchandise, so it wasn't just the toys, it was probably a pretty wise investment for him as well. There's rumors that he ended up making $25 million total over this. Poison Ivy was another villain who was chosen, and she was played by Uma Thurman, who apparently liked the ecology angle as it was presented to her, remember, without a script. And at this point in her career, she had a number of roles early on. She hit Pulp Fiction, which was a big hit, and that's the one that got people to actually notice her, although it was far from her first role. That was followed by roles in Beautiful Girls and The Truth About Cats and Dogs, which did okay, but neither one of them was really a big hit. So she needed something else that was going to give her a lot of exposure, something that was going to be a guaranteed hit. You've got the Batman franchise. You've been offered a role to play a villain who wants to save the world from the damage mankind is doing, which is a cause Uma Thurman and most people agree with to some degree. And it would give her a lot of range that year. She could balance this with her role in Gattaca, which I still maintain is her best role to date. She also was given a lot of input into the character's look. So I understand why Uma Thurman would take this part, having not seen a script. The third major villain is Bane. He was played by Jeep Swenson, who was a record-holding bodybuilder, and wasn't primarily known for his acting abilities. He was just the really big guy. He ended up dying a couple months after this film was released. As I said, this was released on June 20th, 1997. Swenson passed away on August 18th of that year. And the quasi-fourth villain that we have here is John Glover, is probably best known to comic fans as Lionel Luther on Smallville, but that was years after he played Dr. Jason Woodrow in this. Now, when I say he's kind of a villain, it's a very small role in this, but Jason Woodrow is the Floronic Man in the comics, so he is drawn from the mythology. Uh, they were doing some of the research when they were actually picking these characters. Now, prior to this small role, he was already a pretty accomplished actor. He has credits going back to 1951, back when he was seven years old. He had a role in Incredible Shrinking Woman with Joel Schumacher, as well as smaller roles in Gremlins 2, Robocop 2, numerous TV shows, including the 1986 Twilight Zone, Murder, She Wrote, L.A. Law, Days and Nights of Molly Dodd. He was the voice of the Riddler on Batman the Animated Series. He did an episode of Deep Space Nine and more. Following this, he would do Homicide, Chicago Hope, Brimstone, Numbers, Heroes, Law and Order, Criminal Intent, and of course Smallville, and a lot more. So up to this point, he had a lot of small roles in high-profile projects, but was very much in the Hey That Guy stage of his career. People didn't really know him by name. On top of casting the villains and the major returning characters, they also had some new characters to introduce. The most prominent is probably Alicia Silverstone as Batgirl, or in this one, Barbara Wilson, not Barbara Gordon. So Silverstone was a rising star at this point. She was coming off of Clueless, off a bunch of Aerosmith music videos, off The Crush. She had known Schumacher personally for a couple of years. So she may have taken this role to fund the production company that she created to make Excess Baggage. That was the first movie that she did where she had a lot of creative control. came out later in 97. She may have also just taken this role using some of the same stellar decision-making prowess she uses when deciding whether or not to give her kids vaccinations, dairy products, diapers, that sort of thing. We also have a character who's probably the least prominent love interest Bruce Wayne has had so far, and that's Elle McPherson as Julie Madison. Julie Madison is actually the first love interest Bruce Wayne ever had in the comics, so she dates back to the 30s and 40s, predates Vicki Vale. And this is halfway through Elle McPherson's acting career, and her most prominent role to date. 
This was preceded by If Lucy Fell, The Mirror Has Two Faces. It was also preceded by Sirens, her second role, which is known to a few Elle McPherson fans. It's best known as a movie with more women than wardrobe. After this, she went on to The Edge with Anthony Hopkins, who was almost cast as Mr. Freeze in this. And probably her most prominent role is as a recurring character on Friends. Vivica A. Fox also has a pretty small role in this movie as one of Mr. Freeze's henchwomen who basically flirts with him and we get to see that Mr. Freeze is still very devoted to his wife who's dying of McGregor syndrome. She agreed to do this film in the middle of a rather lengthy career just because she's a Batman fan. So she just popped in for a day, filmed the one scene, and went back to what else she was working on. Vendela is an Italian model who was also looking to launch an acting career. This was her sixth role out of seven, usually in bit parts, playing models in the shows. In this case, she is Nora Freeze. Michael Paul Chan is in here as a scientist. He's got 114 credits and counting. Was also in Closer, Falling Down, Spy Game, and a lot more. He does work with Joel Schumacher fairly often. Schumacher does like him, but he's often in small roles, both before and for quite a while after this. The other major scientist is Kimberly Scott, who's got 71 credits of her own, including Flatliners, Falling Down, The Abyss, and several others before and after, including a bit part in Batman Forever. And I would say the last really recognizable performer in this movie is Jesse the Body Ventura. He had previously played with Schwarzenegger in Predator and the Running Man. He also appeared in No Holds Barred, Ricochet, Demolition Man, an episode of The X-Files, which we'll be podcasting about on April 19th, 2016. And he took a break from acting to serve as governor of California shortly thereafter. And he's still active as an actor today, now that his governor role is done, as is Schwarzenegger's, in fact. So now to talk about the movie itself. As I've said before, the main purpose of this podcast is to go through and determine what impact this had on the comics, what it was drawn from the comics, how it fits in in terms of the public view of comics and Batman. I mean, when I said they did the research, I said they're pulling characters from the comics, but the characters are not often represented in a way that's accurate to the comics. Julie Madison is fairly accurately represented because at that time, the female love interests were basically there for eye candy and to be female love interests and kind of complicate things, but not really be fully realized characters of their own. It's unfortunate, but that was the era, and that's the character that Elle McPherson was asked to play. When it comes to some of the other characters, Poison Ivy is similar to some incarnations. She's gone through a lot of changes since she first appeared in the 60s. Mr. Freeze was created in an era when we didn't need a lot of motivation. We just needed to understand how the character became physically what they are. So he had an accident when he was working on this material, just as the movie character has. But the whole subplot with his wife and that part of the backstory did not exist in the comics. It was created for the animated series, and that was brought forward into the film. Now, the least accurate adaptations are of Bane and Batgirl. This is not the comic book Bane at all. In the comics, Bane was a character who caused a mass breakout at Arkham Asylum and orchestrated a series of scheduled attacks on Batman all over the city, and he monitored Batman's response times and used that information to deduce the location of the Batcave. In doing this, he kept Batman running for a constant 48-hour gauntlet to make sure he was exhausted, broke into the Batcave since he'd figured out where it was, attacked Batman at home, broke his back, led to the whole nightfall and a temporary replacement Batman. 
he was far from mindless. He was a very intelligent and very calculating character. That's not at all the brainless thug we have here who's just bomb, exit, and can't put two words together. Batgirl is intelligent in both incarnations. So here we know she was a computer science major at Oxbridge Academy, obviously the combination of Oxford and Cambridge. In the comics, she is a computer genius and daughter of Jim Gordon, although Barbara is not the original Batgirl. So people complain about it. Barbara Wilson not being the Batgirl. Barbara Gordon is the clear inspiration for this version of Batgirl, but she's actually the second comic book Batgirl and not the last one. The original comic book Batgirl was, again, pretty one-dimensional. After the whole Wortham seduction of the innocent thing, they wanted to give female characters to show that, yeah, Batman and Robin are interested in women, so they created Batwoman and Batgirl, where, of course, Batman was interested in Batwoman and Robin was interested in Batgirl. Barbara Gordon actually came out of the 1966 series, namely the third season, where she was introduced as Jim Gordon's daughter, librarian by day, Batgirl by night, and that's largely what she is in the comics as well. She was published in the comics first, but they were doing that in response to plans that the TV series already had. She continued as Batgirl in that role for about 20 years. And then in The Killing Joke, which is highly recommended for those who are old enough to buy it, the Joker cripples her and she eventually responds by becoming Oracle. So she's living in a wheelchair, but sets up a technological network that supports the Bat family, runs the Birds of Prey as a team leader by remote. She is one of the most realized and fully fleshed out female characters in the DC universe. That was undone in 2011 when they decided to do the new 52 and bring her back as Batgirl. But a lot of fans react to that. They say, well, she was originally Batgirl, but you know what? If you sit down and do the math... Because of when The Killing Joke was published, she's actually, at least up to 2011, had spent more time as Oracle than as Batgirl. And certainly had more comics published as Oracle than as Batgirl. Now that she's back as Batgirl, it's catching up and that may change again. Now the story as a whole, on the outline level, I can see why they thought it was a good idea. Each character has something that would appeal to an actor and would have something that brings them in. So Alfred is dying. Bruce Wayne is losing his father figure. Dick is getting kind of tired of being treated as the sidekick instead of a partner and is ready to break out on his own. They even took elements of Greg Land's 1994 Nightwing costume redesign and brought those into this version of the Robin costume. Mr. Freeze has the whole tragedy with the loss of his wife. Poison Ivy wants to save the world from the ravages and pollution of man. Batgirl's the troubled teen who, frankly, mostly exists so that they have a character who's allowed to hit the female villain. One of the common complaints about this movie is that there's so many characters that there isn't time to do any of them right because there's five major characters. You know, it, the 1966 movie has a shorter runtime and more characters, and they make that work. A big part of the problem here is not just the number of characters, but the fact that they spend so much time in action sequences trying to ramp up that action that you don't have enough time to deal with the characters. They're also aiming for kids, but they forget that you can write for children without pandering to them and talking down to them. They should have taken a lot more cues from the animated series. That Bruce Timm series did it very well. But again, we'll get into that in more detail in Mask of the Phantasm next month. There's also a little too much catering to the actors, I think. As I said, Uma Thurman had a lot of input in her character's look. The look isn't a problem. You've got to have some sort of appearance. You might as well have feedback on that. Schwarzenegger loves to deliver jokes. If you see him in interviews, he's actually a pretty intelligent, funny, and well-spoken guy. He's just not 
that in any of the characters he plays. He is not a good actor. He's got 27 ice puns in here. That's an average of 4.6 minutes between puns, including all the time spent in scenes that don't have Mr. Freeze and the closing credits. Now, the visual effects, which has sort of become the centerpiece of the movie, because the story certainly wasn't, they were done by John Dykstra, who doesn't show any of the Oscar-winning talent that he's shown in other movies. We've got Batman and Robin basically surfing down to the city after coming out of a rocket. Robin lands on a rooftop. Now, from the above view, we can see a very smooth rooftop in the CGI. When he lands on it, shingles start flying off like surf as he's surfing down this roof, which is not only inconsistent with how the roof appeared a few moments ago, but it doesn't make any physical sense at all. The rooftop is not a fluid, and the way shingles are overlaid with each other and overlapped, they are not going to fly off the way that water comes off the back of a surfboard. It just doesn't physically happen. Of course, that would involve people paying attention to the way water behaves, which they don't. In the later fight when Batgirl is beating up Poison Ivy, because again, only girls can hit girls, Batman is tied up in vines, which also means he does not have the camera angle to show Mr. Freeze the video he shows him later, and Robin is being held underwater. Now, I think they decided Robin was underwater too long without taking a breath for this to be realistic, so he needs to come up for a breath, but I don't think they decided that until after they were done filming on that set. Because when Robin does come up for a breath, it's actually not hard to tell that it's the footage he's used for the final escape. His head comes up and goes back down by reversing the film, which means the droplets of water that come spraying up with him turn around and go the other way in midair. And as they hit the water surface, it becomes more stable and more smooth and not broken up as it actually would be. There's just so many logical errors that are done for toys and gags. We've got their first introduction to Mr. Freeze. He is a new villain. Right? Commissioner Gordon flat out says, there's somebody new in town. He's calling himself Mr. Freeze. This is what he's doing as Batman and Robin are out there. So they don't know Mr. Freeze is a threat. This is when he first introduces himself. They know none of his backstory yet. They have to go research that later. And yet they've got ice skating blades built into their boots that they don't deploy until after they've been fighting on the ice for several minutes. When Robin breaks into the museum, he leaves a Robin-shaped hole in the museum doors, and not just the outline of his body, which could almost make sense, but his actual chest emblem, where there's nothing physically that would produce that shape. The only way that happens is if instead of coming in and helping Batman fight the bad guys, he takes the time to carve that outline into the door to make that the weak point, then backs up and takes a run with his motorcycle. So either he's jeopardizing people in danger to make an impressive entrance, or it just makes no sense. I would rather believe that the character who becomes Nightwing, it's not taking that time to carve it for that spectacular entrance. Now, that scene is one of many scenes that's got some truly horrible wire work. There's no attention to physics at all. We have got people who are not going in parabolic arcs through the air, which is what they should be. If you're going through the air... You have to follow a parabolic arc, and you have to do it at variable speeds. That's one of the issues I have with Jurassic Park The Lost World. They got the parabolic arcs, but they do it at a uniform speed, which means the timing is off. You can tell which characters are CGI and which ones are not, because they get the physics wrong. Here, they get the physics wrong all over the place. When Batman is tied up in the vines in that same fight with Poison Ivy I mentioned earlier, we could see his cape is tied to his legs for no apparent reason other than to keep it nice and bound around him for the look. We get a scientist saying, what killed the dinosaurs? The Ice Age. 
which wasn't the case. We know it's a meteor strike. There's someone on the IMDb trivia who said, we don't know what killed the dinosaurs. It could have been an ice age. No, we can track it. We know when the ice ages happened. We know when the extinctions happened. They were not simultaneous. Satellite imaging has actually pretty much determined that the impact crater or from the dinosaur-killing meteor is better known these days as the Gulf of Mexico. We have clear signs of the massive rewriting of the script that was going on during filming. We've got some ADR work, so additional dialogue recording. There's probably about a dozen cases where the words you're hearing do not match the lips of the person who was saying those words because it was recorded in the studio after the fact. We have the little pointless Max Headroom stutter on the computer simulation of Alfred, who apparently figured that his quasi-niece would find the Batcave and made not one but two Batgirl outfits in her size. We get the whole chase scene when Batman in his Batmobile and Robin on the Redbird are chasing after Mr. Freeze in his tank thing when they're jumping from rooftop to rooftop. Now remember, the movie opens with Batman leaving the Batcave first. Then Robin gets on the Redbird, which isn't even available until after the Batmobile leaves, easily catches up with the Batmobile. So we know the Redbird is a faster vehicle. And Batman knows it's a faster vehicle. So now we're in the rooftop chase, and Batman has decided the Redbird is not going to be able to make the jump, when all that matters when making the jump is the speed. I mean, yeah, you can claim the Batmobile has got the jet engines on the back. Those flames curve up so visibly that there is no way the projectiles are providing any propulsion. They are not leaving with the momentum required. That is not a means of propulsion. The Redbird would make that jump more easily than the Batmobile, and yet Batman risks Robin's life by shutting off his motor, and he was moving so quickly that he just barely manages to not fall off the edge instead of leap. When he gets to the rooftop, yeah, Mr. Freeze freezes the Batmobile in the air, Batman ejects, swoops in, and comes through the windshield, and apparently just handily defeats Mr. Freeze, pulls him out, no problems, we don't see it. We see him coming through the windshield, and then there's a swirl of the cape as he's standing over the defeated Mr. Freeze, and yet later in the movie, he has a really tough time beating him, as he's jumping on the keyboard I've never seen before without destroying the computer simulations, and repeatedly kicking Mr. Freeze, and then putting his feet back on that computer console. There are just so many issues with the way this film was executed. And a lot of that did come out of the rewrites that came to filling Goldman's original darker script and rewriting it to make it more kid-friendly and brighter. Now, the filmmakers involved did want to continue. They were talking about doing a Batman spinoff. Had a couple ideas for Batman movies to do next. Apparently, Warner Brothers had already commissioned a script for something that they were now calling Batman Triumphant because they really liked that name. Schumacher wanted to do Batman Year One based on Frank Miller's work because that was his favorite source material. But that didn't happen. And let's take a look at why. Let's look at the box office budgets and numbers for the four movies in this franchise to date since the Tim Burton relaunch. So we have the 1989 film, a $35 million budget and a $40 million opening weekend. That opening weekend was only 16.1% of its total domestic gross of $251 million and made $411 million worldwide. We've said before you need to have about two to three times your budget as your domestic gross before movies are generally profitable by the time they're done sharing monies with everyone else who've invested in them and so forth. Here the domestic gross is more like seven times the budget. The worldwide is over ten times. The first movie made its investors a whole lot of money. Batman Returns had a higher budget, eighty million. The opening weekend was about forty six million, forty five and a half, twenty eight point one percent of its total domestic gross. 
It ended up with 162 million domestic, which is double the box office, and 267 million worldwide. So much more expensive to make than the first, but a more significant drop in total box office. So at that point, the investors weren't convinced that the first movie wasn't just a fluke and that Batman really could survive. Schumacher did prove them wrong with Batman Forever. $100 million budget, and that includes paying off all the actors we said they had to pay off to recast. $52.7 million opening weekend, so 28.7% of total domestic gross, comparable to Batman Returns. $184 million domestic, but $337 million worldwide. So this had more toys, tie-ins, and the revenue that way, as well as a bigger worldwide appeal. So that's why they tried again for Batman and Robin, which had a $125 million budget. Which means in that two to three times rule, we're looking for the 250 to 375 million domestic. 250 million domestic would probably do it because of all the merchandising tie-ins. The opening weekend gross was about 42.9 million, or 39.9% of the total domestic gross of the film. So a much higher proportion. In the end, it brought in 107 million domestic. So they took 100% of the box office totals for all sales in North America, which they didn't do if they did take 100% and not share it with the distributors, not share it with the exhibitors, not share it with the stars, they would have still lost $18 million. The total worldwide box office was only $238 million. And because of all the international distribution issues and the way that works, they don't make as much off that. So Batman and Robin did not recover its production costs in the theatrical run. If it is considered break-even or profitable now, that would be because of home video sales and the merchandising. My guess would be, if they consider it profitable now, it's only because of sales of the complete saga DVD and Blu-ray sets. As I said, I was working in a theater when this came out. It was actually the last of these movies that came out while I was working in a theater. It came out June 1997. I only worked there until September of that year. I have never seen word of mouth travel more effectively than I did with this film. Keep in mind, the internet was certainly around... And people were aware of it. Not everyone had access. There certainly wasn't any high speed. Those who were watching things on the internet, it was very low res, very choppy, downloading in advance over dial-up. So we weren't getting piracy. We weren't getting a lot of message boards. They were out there if you knew what to look for, but they were not really part of the general consciousness. Now, previously, Warner Brothers as a distributor generally encouraged staff screenings of their movies that they had a lot of faith in because they figured if you can get the staff excited, especially since a lot of the staff are the teenagers that they're aiming for with the big action blockbusters, they'll tell their friends it'll help drive box office. So we were basically told by Warner Brothers in faxes, do staff screenings of Twister before you show it as one example. So they were telling us, get your staff out there, watch it because they had enough faith in that movie. They thought that it would just help box office and get the staff excited and telling customers, oh, this is awesome, you need to see that, and telling friends, come in and see it, it's awesome. For Batman and Robin, Warner Brothers explicitly forbade staff screenings before the day of release. They can't forbid them completely, but they did say you could not do one prior to June 20th. Now, my boss at the time took one look at that fax and said, okay, what do they not want us to see? Called a staff meeting for a release day of June 20th. At 4 p.m. to give us time to get there after school, attendance was mandatory. All we did was watch the movie. So by the time we were done the trailers and everything, we got about 6.15, doors open at 6.30. We had to put it together. He basically said, we need to see this movie. We need to see what's going on. Even he couldn't take the whole thing. With 45 minutes left, he left the theater, sat on a bench, 
and watch the rain coming down the windows because it was just that much more entertaining than this film. That Friday night, that auditorium could hold 315 people. We sold out two screenings and probably could have sold out four. The Saturday matinees, again, two screenings, they both sold out, but with no real excess. Saturday night, the screenings ended up about three quarters full. By Sunday matinee, they were down to half full. And this is in the era where we didn't have 10,000 copies of movies. We had maybe three or four. So typically, if you're selling out Friday night, you're selling out all the matinees over the weekend. You're selling out Saturday night, and you're seeing overflow coming back the next week. That wasn't happening. Any other movie, if we could have sold four screenings that first night, we were still selling out three weeks later. This one, by the time we got to Cheap Tuesdays, which typically would also sell out if Friday sold out, the 7 p.m. show sold 45 tickets in the 315-seat theater. The 9 o'clock show sold more like 30. This is one where people were telling their friends to stay away, telling them very clearly and very repetitively. And I understand why. This pulled from the comics. It pulled from the animated series. It pulled from the right sources. The execution was so poor, as far as I can tell, it hasn't had any influence on the Batman franchise from this point on. The closest thing we could argue is that as of 2011, Nightwing's sort of V-shape on his costume has changed from blue to red, which was the color used here. But you can listen to Kyle Higgins talk about that on Word Balloon. You can find interviews with the artists. The whole thought process is laid out, and this movie doesn't factor into it. So there's a coincidental overlap there. Which, to be fair to the movie, is probably because they did have very specific visual looks. All those costumes are very precise. The vehicles are very precise. Sure, they did it to sell toys, but they still did that part of the job quite well. It's just putting toy sales first and foremost and forgetting story that really wrecked this film and almost wrecked the franchise. It would be a few years before it came back. We'll talk about that in a couple of months. What we're going to talk about next month instead is Batman Mask of the Phantasm the film that was a spin-off of the animated series we've been talking about that actually came out between Batman Returns and Batman Forever. So join us again on the 14th of August when we discuss Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Thank you for listening.